Well, if you've done ever, any traveling from time to time, you know what it's like to have directions to a place you're going where you've never been before. Maybe a print directions up on the internet, maybe somebody tells you, you know, when you get to this town, you ought to do, you know, go these streets and go this way. Your whole trip, though, you're always watching for signs. You're traveling down the highway and you're looking for, you know, Route 14. Where is Route 14? Where can I, oh, here's the exit, and you take that and then you look on your list, okay, what's the next sign? And you're looking for your signs as you're going along the roads. And when you approach the city, then there are still even more signs to come. You find the, the, you know, the landmark that's on the right-hand side. You'll see McDonald's there and then the gas station. And just after that, you turn left and then you turn right and you get to your destination. You, you know what I'm talking about? <coughs> yes? You know what you're talking about? Well, last week, I feel like we were on the highway traveling this path of eschatology in some sense. And we, we've now come into the city. We've followed all these highway signs and now we've approached the city. I entitled my message last week, Signs of the End, and I titled my sermon this morning, More Signs of the End, because that's really what it's about. We're going to look at more signs of the end that Jesus spoke about, found in Matthew chapter 24. I invite you to open your Bibles there, if they aren't there. Last week, we looked for various highway signs along the road. We saw that along the road, Jesus warned of deceivers who would come. Here's kind of the first sign. Jesus warned also of wars in verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 24. In verse 7, he warned of disasters that would come, famines and earthquakes. In verse 9, Jesus warned of the persecution that would come. We see that. We pass by that. In verse 10 and 12 and 13, he gave the sign of defection that would come, people falling away from the faith. And finally, our last sign that we saw last week was that of evangelism, when the whole gospel of the kingdom being preached to the whole world, and they said the end would come. And those were only a portion of the signs which Jesus gave. This week, we're going to be looking at more signs of the end. I hope to get through verse 28 today, so we'll zip through them. Though this first one's going to take a while, I must admit that. The first sign this morning we'll look at is the abomination of desolation. It's the seventh sign alongside of the road. And of all the signs, this one really is unique. I mean, it's unique in the sense that all the other signs have always taken place continually throughout all of history. I showed you last week how there have always been wars since the days of Jesus. I showed you how there have been always deceivers. I showed you last week how there's always been disasters and persecution and defection. There's always been evangelism, taking the gospel to places that haven't heard before. But on this sign, the abomination of desolation, it's such that it, it can't take place throughout all of history. It's more of like a, a one-time event. As we shall see, it might happen a few times throughout history of the world, but it can only be at, at segmented times. It can't be like all the time, like wars are has to do with what the abomination of desolation is. You can even look there at the words, abomination. That's the idea of something being very detestable to God. It, it carries the idea of something that defiles God's perfect holiness. Whenever you're reading through Scripture, sometimes there are specific sins that are listed up as an abomination before the Lord. It means it's really bad. And that's what they're talking about. It's something that's really bad, defiling God's holiness, 
<clears throat> and then desolation has to do with some type of destruction that comes and takes place. So some, some holiness of God being utterly desecrated, coming with the destruction of that as well. That's a little bit of the sense that we get from the words itself, the abomination of desolation. And Jesus spoke here in verse 15 to the disciples. He says, When therefore you, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. At this point, Jesus almost invites us to stop and think about these things. He says, let the reader understand. <clears throat> now, for years, this, this phrase has always confused me. Uh, I've gone through, I've, I've got a version of the Bible that's got the words of Jesus in red. Not that that's good or bad or anything, but the words of Jesus are in red. And then I get here to verse 15, and let the reader understand is in black. How many of you have a Bible kind of like that? <coughs> Other Bibles, if you're a red-letter edition, have all these words that are spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, have that in red. How many of you have it in red? Yeah, and some have it some way, some have it another way. I've always read this, kind in my Bible, it's black. Almost like Matthew puts in this parenthetical statement about how the reader of Matthew ought to understand these things. And it was this week, as I looked at this, I said, no, it's not talking about the reader of Matthew. It talks about let the reader of Daniel understand what the abomination of desolation is. And so really what we ought to do is we ought to read some of Daniel to try to understand as best we can what the abomination of desolation is. And believe me, it's easier said than done. It's very difficult. The phrase abomination of desolation or something close to that occurs four times in the book of Daniel. And there's debates about when exactly this is talking about. Two of them, I think, are very clear speaking about the desecration that took place just after the rise of Greece to power, several hundred years before the coming of Christ. I think that's very clear. One of them, I think, is very clear to take place around the time of the Messiah. One of them, I don't know. I don't know exactly where it is. But here's what I want you to know. In every instance in which the abomination of desolation comes in Daniel, because I just spent some time reading this week, so what is this? Every time I notice that it has to do right in close connections with sacrifices being stopped. Every time. All four times without exception. The abomination of desolation, the stopping of sacrifices, right together. So this morning I want to even show you some of that. Take some time. It's more going to be more of a Bible study today than a, a preaching time. But as Jesus says, let the reader understand, I want to help you understand as much as possible. I encourage you to look at these passages this week sometime. See if they make sense to you. First occurrence of the abomination of desolation comes in Daniel chapter 8. So turn over in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. It's the last of the major prophets. <coughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And in Daniel 8, <coughs> the reference comes here in verse 13. in the middle of a vision where there are a couple of animals. There's a ram with two horns and a goat with one horn. The goat defeats the ram but loses his horn. His horn then divides into four different horns. The small horn becomes exceedingly great like in verse 9 it talks about. And then in verse 11 we, we read how great this little horn became. We read this. 
This little horn magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. I'm talking about God himself. Raised himself equal to be with God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Lifting himself, removing the sacrifice. Throwing it down. In verse 13, we see how bad it is. One holy creature is speaking to another, saying... How long will this vision? No, I'm sorry. Yeah. How long will this vision apply about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. In some versions, it describes it as a transgression or rebellion of desolation. I think it's talking about the same type of thing. He's got this holy place being trampled down. Now you say, well, what, what does that mean? Yeah, these two animals with horns, and one's defeating another, and then they crash, and his other horns grow up. Well, if you read on in Daniel 8, it describes in detail what this means. Like in verse 21, like verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Right? So it's an animal, two horns, one's Media, one's Persia. And then, then the goat comes up and defeats it. And the goat, it says in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the four horns that raise up, verse 22, represent the four kingdoms which arise from that. Kids, maybe you've studied, adults, maybe you've studied Alexander the Great, right? He, he conquered, it was Greece, he conquered, and then he, his kingdom came into four different pieces. And so we can identify this in Daniel with what point in time in history this is. In fact, this is why many people, when they read the Bible, say, oh, this is so accurate, Daniel must have written this after the fact, rather than writing it around 600 B.C., because these events happened around 100, 200 B.C. And so it's called the late date of Daniel because it's so precise, it's so exact. We believe that Daniel wrote this around time of 600 B.C., several hundred years before this would happen. <coughs> and so we see these things coming about, you know, 100, 200 B.C. It's exactly what took place. And in the year 175, this little horn was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who rose to power in the region of Syria, which is kind of north of Jerusalem. In 170 B.C., he enacted a law requiring all citizens to present themselves four times a year before Antiochus Epiphanes and pay formal homage to him, the senior god of the Seleucids. And the Jews, of course, hated this law and they rebelled against it. So here were these, these Jews down south. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did, he says, I'm going to teach these Jews. And he went from the north down south to squash the rebellion. He entered Jerusalem in 186 B.C., erected an altar to Zeus over the altar, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Therefore, he defiled the temple. And soon afterwards, you know what happened? Sacrifices were stopped. Just like Daniel 8, verse 11 says. That's the first occurrence, the abomination of desolation. It gives you an idea of what took place. Let's look at the second one. Daniel chapter 9. <coughs> Look over there. The context here is that we find Daniel reading his Bible. He's reading, verse 2 says, in the book of Jeremiah the prophet. And he understands that the desolations of Jerusalem is 70 years. Jerusalem was laid in waste. Nobody was there. He said 70 years until that desolation's finished. And as he's thinking about it, it's been 69 years since they've been in captivity. Like they're going to go back into the land. And Daniel understood that and instantly caused him to pray a prayer of repentance, both for himself and for the people. That's what it says in verse 20. Then Gabriel comes 
and gives him this vision, which starts here in verse 24. Seventy weeks has been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, the word here translated weeks literally is sevens. Daniel says that there will be 70 sevens until this take place. And every Bible commentator, scholar that I know, interprets these weeks, these sevens, as years. He says there are going to be 70 sets of seven years, which if you do your math, that's 490 years. Until, verse, um, till it comes in, to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision. And so there's seven, 490 years. And so it goes on in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, that is 49 years. And then there will be 62 weeks, which I don't, 62 times 7, I'm not that fast, 152 or I don't know. But anyway, there's going to be these many years until it ends. And that time, if you calculate that out, is 483 years. And there was a decree to rebuild Jerusalem took place. Artaxerxes I in 457 B.C. issued a decree to allow many worshipers to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city there. In Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, you see that he went back to reestablish the city. The timing works out perfectly. If you go from 457 B.C., whatever it is, 483 years, it comes right to the beginning of the Messiah's ministry. It's like exactly right just as Daniel had foretold. And then it says here in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was cut off, he was died, and he would have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Did that take place? It sure did in A.D. 70. So after these 483 years, here's going to come the Messiah at some point he's going to be cut off, and at some point the city of Jerusalem, and even as it says there, it's the, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Its end will come a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. That's exactly what happened. Messiah coming, being cut off, and then they're going to destroy the temple and the holy place. And here in verse 27 we read, that he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. There it is again. Stopping the sacrifice. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. There it is. The abomination of desolations until a complete destruction. One that's decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. (coughs) Now, when exactly this happens, there's massive difference of opinion among Bible scholars. I mean, some argue that that uh, this covenant was one that Jesus made with the Jews, but halfway through that covenant, three and a half years later, Jesus was cut off, perhaps. Others say there's some covenant made with the Jews three and a half years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem when the sacrifices were stopped, perhaps. I think that's probably the best. Others put this entirely in the future, saying this hasn't happened yet. There'll be some covenant established between the Jewish people and Antichrist. Perhaps. I don't know. But what you need to see here is that Daniel connects the abomination of desolation with the stopping of sacrifice. Let's turn to the next one, Daniel chapter 11. 
In this chapter, Daniel predicts what will take place in Persia and Greece in the years to come. He says in verse 2 here that, that three kings will come along after Darius, the king. Then verse 3 talks about how they'll be defeated by a mighty king, which was fulfilled exactly in Alexander the Great. And after his death, verse 4, the kingdom is going to be broken up into four points. You've heard this before. This is history. And then the chapter describes the conflicts between some of these four points. Conflict between the north and the south. The north were the Seleucids and the south were the Ptolemites. And at one point, the king of the north, who we know as Antiochus Epiphanes, would come into the south, as it says in verse 29. And then we read in verse 31, And forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortresses and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Right? The abomination of desolation comes. It's the destruction of the sacrifice. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. I already told you that. Daniel chapter 8. Same story told again. The next one, the final one, is in Daniel chapter 12. I already read this whole chapter for you. This one, it's difficult to know exactly when this would take place. In verse 5, we see these two holy ones standing on two sides of the river talking about when these terrible things will will take place. Verse 6, they're asking that. Daniel said, I don't know when they will. Verse 8. And then he was told in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. And many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those of insight will understand. And here it is. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, my point today isn't to talk about what the 1,290 days is and what that is because I don't know. I feel like Daniel. I don't know what this means. But what I do know what it means is that the abomination of desolation and the stopping of sacrifices are coming hand in hand right together. And also it's clear, even there's a period of time after the abomination of desolation, so that isn't the end of everything. So do you understand now? I tried. As best as I could. You go back and you can read the notes. But we just read the passages in Daniel exactly like Jesus told us to. I know I've given you a bunch of material, but here's the point. When the abomination of desolation comes, it's connected with the abolishing of the sacrifices. And as a result of this, I believe that the abomination of desolation is what Jesus spoke about to his disciples took place when the altar of God in Jerusalem was destroyed. I mean, ultimately, when the the altar was destroyed, can you sacrifice any longer? You can't. In fact, one of the most troubling questions you might ask a Jewish person, I've asked this before to Jewish people, and they can't answer you. He says, you know, I read in the law about sacrifices. Why don't you sacrifice anymore? And they can't give you an answer. They don't know. They're being disobedient to God. They can't give you an answer. I remember talking with one Jewish woman who, who was, uh, became a disciple of Christ and was talking with her and just about that. And so she went back and talked to her mother and said, Mom, why don't we sacrifice anymore? And her mother kind of hemmed and hawed and said, um, 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 uh, Well, because God's loving, extending His loving kindness today. Kind of that's all that she could say. And and that's even getting towards the gospel, because that is why we don't sacrifice, because His loving kindness to us came in Christ. But they can't answer that. And ultimately, if they say, why don't they sacrifice, ultimately it comes back to this fact, they don't have an altar. You can't sacrifice without an altar. The Romans destroyed it. 
And when the Romans destroyed it, they stopped the sacrifices. Now, I believe that the abomination of desolation will take place shortly before the altar was destroyed. There's some kind of defiling sacrifice, something like Antiochus Epiphanes, offering some pig on the altar, defiling it, and then destroying it is the, the pattern of what takes place. In fact, Josephus himself tells us of just what took place shortly before destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus tells us of the wicked men who came and elected for themselves a high priest named Phanius, the son of Samuel of the village of Apha. Josephus said this man, he was, not a man, he was a man not only unworthy of the high priesthood, but that he did not know well what the high priesthood was. In fact, Josephus even said he was like elected from the farm community, real simple guy, and they just kind of put him there. And, and they put on this man the, the priestly garments and the festal robes, and, and really they hailed him as the high priest. Josephus says that such wickedness was sport and pastime with these evil men. Just desecrating the temple, lifting up people who didn't even know what the priesthood was to be in charge of the sacrifices. And certainly bad things were done there on the altar as he's overseeing this high priestly activities. And at one point Josephus even says that they killed a man in the middle of the temple for trying to stop the wickedness taking place. You have a righteous man standing up and saying, this man can't be high priest, he doesn't know what's going on. And so they killed this man right in the middle of the temple. And they understood how bad that was. At least when they killed Jesus, they didn't kill him in the temple. They dragged him out outside the city to kill him because they knew how holy the temple was. You're not supposed to kill people in the temple. And the other righteous priests who beheld the mockery of these things, they shed tears and lamented the things that took place. Listen to the testimony of Ananus. He was a former high priest. He said this, Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God so full of so many abominations, or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of these blood-shedding villains. Ananus also spoke about how the Romans came in and broke in upon the, the temple. And, and they broke in upon the sacred customs of the Jews in the temple. You remember when, when Paul was accused one time of bringing a Greek into the temple? How much animosity and anger the Jewish people had against him? And here these Romans came into the temple like it was nothing. I'm telling you, the high priests, the Jewish people, the disciples at the time of Jesus believed that the abomination of desolation was taking place right before their eyes. And I believe it was. In fact, in Luke, Luke gives us a reliable interpretation of this. In his version of the Olivet Discourse, why don't you turn over there? It's Luke chapter 21. You can even see in the context of Luke 21, the whole Olivet Discourse being given. Nation rising against nation, great earthquakes and plagues and famines. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus said. But he gets down to this point where he's talking about the abomination of desolation. Luke records Jesus not saying these words. But he says something very interesting. He says, verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. In other words, disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies... You know that the destruction is, is soon and you ought to leave. In, in Matthew, it's, I think that what you ought to understand is that he, Jesus said both what Luke said about the army surrounding Jerusalem, and then I think Matthew, or Jesus probably went on to explain about they're going to abominate the altar. There's going to be this abomination of desolations. And when you see that, leave. 
Because it's soon to come upon, and soon the altar will be crushed after that. But you have time. When you see that, then take off and leave. And that's exactly what Matthew told them to do. Right? That's what Luke says here in Luke 21, 21. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let them not. Let those who are in the country not enter the city. Right? Let's go back to Matthew. Let's read Matthew's words. You'll see it's exactly the same thing, exactly the same point. When Jesus was mentioning the abomination of desolation, he says it's going to happen when Jerusalem is surrounded, which took place in 70 A.D. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 24. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are out of his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, is what Jesus says. These verses present a sense of urgency for your own safety. Jesus says, head for the hills. Take off when you see this happen. Away from the cities where you might not be found, verse 16. If you're on the roof of your housetop, which was customary back then, the roofs became an extra room for them. If you're on the roof and you see that or hear about that, escape the city. Don't even go down to get your clothes. If you're in the field working, just leave. Don't bother to get your coat. Survival is more important than warmth. And the ever-compassionate Jesus says that it will be a difficult trek for those who are pregnant or those of little babies in those days. I'm sure that some of us at Rock Valley Bible Church can give testimony to this. Iversons, it was a struggle probably to get to church today, huh? And Reitz, it was a struggle to get to church today, right? With babies having been born just a couple... Could you imagine now hiking and traveling up into the rugged mountains carrying the baby? That'd be hard. June Basho is here. Maybe she's having her baby right now. Could you imagine, you know, June Basho trying to climb up the mountain? It's going to be hard. Jesus is compassionate. He says, pray that it won't be that day. Pray it won't be in the wintertime because the cold will make it more difficult. Pray it won't be on the Sabbath because people wouldn't be nearly as willing to help travelers on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. This is how big it is. When you see the abomination of desolation, just take off to save your life. Now, it's interesting, even in verses 16 through 20, how many specific geographical references there are I think it points to a specific fulfillment in the days of Jesus. He talks about Judea. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that's a specific place if you're right there at that time. He made specific reference to the types of houses in which they live, right? If you frequently get on the roof, it's difficult for us to do that today. We don't spend time on the roof. Except maybe our kids in our playset, they like to play up on the roof, much to mom's chagrin. <laughs> it's dangerous. We don't, we're not up on the roof today. Jesus spoke of Sabbath as a major hindrance for travel. It's not true today. You can travel on the Sabbath. Traveling in the hills. Today you just drive your car up there. It's very difficult even to fulfill these verses today. It's much easier to understand them just right then at the time of Jesus. And I think it all points clear to the fact the abomination of desolation took place in the days of the disciples shortly before the holy place was destroyed. And Jesus told his disciples to flee when they saw these things take place. Okay, now history tells us two things. History tells us that when this took place, the Jews descended into the city. Josephus tells us that the street, that the city was overcrowded. One commentator says the Jews in general rushed into Jerusalem, resulting in a horrible bloodbath. What did the Christians do? 
History's silent. I couldn't find anything that said, I, I fully expected that you'll find Josephus saying, all the Christians headed for the hills and they took off. I couldn't find anything. The closest reference we have is from a, a man in the 4th century who wrote something about Christians. And I think maybe he made it up because he's hopeful as I was. I hope the, the Christians fled, but we don't know. But it really leads to a pointed application today. And I know my message has been historical. If you've been tuned out, now's the time to come back in because now's the time perhaps it's an application for you. When you see things taking place that God hates, how do you respond? Here God had established the temple upon the mountain Jerusalem as the most sacred place upon the planet. In fact, today even it's the most expensive piece of real estate. Do you realize that on that piece, on the temple, there is a building there that cost half a billion dollars to, to build. That's a lot of money. I don't think Bill Gates has a home that big. Half a billion dollars because the roof is solid gold. And if you want to buy that piece of property, I'm not sure all the wealth in all of America has enough money to buy that piece of property. It is a sacred place. It's a location that God, we read in the Bible, set His name there and chose to dwell. Many, many times in the Bible we read that God has put His name there. That's where He dwells, just right there in Jerusalem. And it ought to be treated as holy especially the Jews. And when it was defiled, it was a demonstration, really, of the hatred of the people against God. I mean, you think about the things that God considers holy, and He considered that place the most holy of any place on the planet, and then to defile that just accentuates your hatred to God. And Jesus said, this was so bad that when that happens, you flee. And so I ask you, you see things all around you, things that God hates. When you see those things, what do you do? Do you flee or do you stay in the city? You know, today it's in some sense no different. We don't have a holy place. We don't have sacrifices. But we ought to flee from the things that God hates. I mean, the Bible tells us, listen, I found several commands in the Bible that says flee this sin or flee this sin or flee that sin. These are the sins I think that God hates most of all. He says flee immorality. Talk about sexual immorality. Flee from it. When it comes, you just take off. He says flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Idolatry, lifting up anything above God. Having affections for anything more than your affections for God is idolatry. In fact, it even says that greed is idolatry in Colossians. In 2 Timothy 2, 22, Paul told Timothy, this young pastor, to flee from youthful lusts. Just flee from them. Get away. He didn't say, well, kind of dampen it. Flee from them. We're also to flee from the love of money, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. You start loving money, God says flee from that. Flee from that. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon instructs us to flee from sin like an animal or a bird would flee from a hunter. You ever like open your door outside and maybe startled an animal? Like maybe a squirrel or you ever maybe turned around a corner of a building and there's a, a rabbit? What do they do? And they're gone, right? Or maybe um, you know we've got these bird feeders, we've got bird feeders outside our, our back porch window, and we see birds there. You know what happens as soon as we open the door? Whoo, they fly away. That's how you ought to be with sin. When it comes, you ought to just boom, be like an animal. 
So next time you see an animal fly away, maybe we can start doing this with our family. Vaughn, we've not done this yet. But, you know, when you see an animal, say, kids, kids, that's a picture of what we ought to do with sin. Take off from it. I think that's the clear application here. Right, with the abomination of desolation. Take off. It's the seriousness of sin in our lives. You can't play with sin. You can't play with sin and live any more than you could survive the Roman onslaught of Jerusalem. I think about when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce young Joseph by grabbing him and wanting him to lie with her. You remember what he did? He left his garment in her hand, fled away, and went outside. And the Lord was faithful to preserve Joseph. And yet there are others who will take this fire into their bosom. And it burns their clothes. It burns their skin. They walk on hot coals of sin and it snares their feet. Testimony is clear. Whoever goes into his neighbor's wife will not be unpunished. Her house seeks down to death. Her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return. They do not reach the paths of life. That's the seriousness of sin. You can't play with sin and survive. You're to flee from sin. When the temptation comes, I just tell you, run away. Get away from it. The path of protection is a path of safety. Well, there's the first sign today. It's really the seventh sign we've looked at. The abomination of desolation. And really, before we go on, let me just say one thing about the abomination of desolation. Most times I've heard people talk about this. I've heard them talk about how the abomination is all in the future. Right, they say the temple needs to be rebuilt, sacrifice needs to start again so that someone can fulfill this passage. You ever heard that before? And um, I just say it might be that this might happen. I mean, that's how prophecy works. Remember when I talked to you before about prophecy having near fulfillments, having far fulfillments? You know, it might be that there is some time in the future where this happens in a, in a greater way. I'm not excluding the possibility of that. But I'm quite sure that it did happen to the time of the disciples. And perhaps when we get to the end of history and we're with Christ in glory, we're like, oh, okay. It also happened near the time when he returned. But I'm not sure it has to happen at that point in time. In fact, I was interesting. I was thinking about this a little bit. I think much of uh, eschatology comes because they've got to get this another temple built, because they've got to get this altar built, so that they can have sacrifices, so they can stop sacrifices. I think that's where much of eschatology comes from with this, just believing it's not been fulfilled yet. But do you realize that reestablishing Jewish sacrifices would be an abomination to God? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, to, to establish sacrifice again is to slap the face of God by saying that the sacrifice of Christ was insufficient and we need to sacrifice for our sins once again. I think we ought to resist with all of our might any Jewish effort to reestablish any altar of sacrifice again because it's striking right at the root of our hope. It's the one sacrifice for sins for all time. And there is some movement in Jerusalem today for them to start that and to rebuild the temple, and that might take place. But I know the abomination desolations took place in the time of the disciples. It might have a greater fulfillment in years to come. I don't know. Well, let's go on. Our second sign today, which is our eighth sign overall, mounting tribulations, comes in verse 21 and 22. And then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days have been cut short, no life 
would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. These verses, again, it's a dark and dreary passage this morning. He's saying what his disciples ought to expect, mounting tribulation. In fact, Jesus says the tribulation will be faced in the city at that time of Jerusalem will be worse than the tribulation that anyone would ever face for all time. It's one of the reasons why I believe it was filled back then in Jerusalem. Because a lot of people say it's, it's only going to be at the end of time that this mounting tribulation is going to happen. But I, I'm saying, well, why did Jesus then or ever will take place if that's the end? I think there's an idea, there's a, this capstone of the, the massive tribulation that comes someday. I think it took place in Jerusalem. Now, certainly, this doesn't mean that more people would die in Jerusalem than would die ever. I mean, the Holocaust, six million Jews were put to death. In the reign of Stalin, some 20 million people systematically murdered. And the destruction of Jerusalem never came close to these numbers. But it does mean, I believe, that the brutality and savagery would never be duplicated again. And Josephus, again, described the suffering that took place in his book, The War of the Jews. And and I bring all these historical references to you because I believe that it's clearly fulfilled in what the thing said. Let me just share with you a bit of what I read. When the Romans came on the city, they surrounded it. They cut off everybody inside from the outside world. That's why it's important to flee so quickly. Because as soon as they surrounded it, they formed a seal around it. And it's just as they were forming, you could get out. But once it formed, you couldn't get out. They formed the seal. Famine broke out in the city, which turned family against family. So they sought for food. I shared some of this with you last week, but I go on more. The famine was so bad that Josephus says they invented terrible methods of torments to discover where food was, okay? You've got to use your imagination. The language here is a bit deceptive, but it's not sounding good. He says that they would stop up the passages of the privy parts of the miserable wretches. They'd plug you up until you felt so bad you would tell people where your food is. They would drive sharp stakes up the fundaments whatever that is. A man was forced to bear what is terrible even to hear in order to make him confess that he had but one loaf of bread or they might discover a handful of barley meal that was concealed. And the worst of all, and this was done when these tormentors were not themselves hungry. It's not like they were starving themselves. They were full, but they were looking for next week and next month and to stock their supplies. And so this savagery, just trying to get food And it was so bad inside the city that the Jews wanted to get out. But it was well nigh impossible with the Romans stationed all around the city and they were often captured by the Romans. And once captured, these people were whipped and tormented with all types of tortures. And then they were crucified in the front of the wall outside Jerusalem. They were catching at one point an average of 500 Jews a day. He captured 500 Jews and you, nail, you whip them and torment them and nail 500 Jews to, the cro- to crosses and you put them just outside the wall and string them all around. Titus, the general, knew about what was taking place. But he allowed it to continue. He hoped the Jews might perhaps yield at the site. In fact, the Jews even would take their family members and say, bring them up there and says, that's what happens if you defect. Stay true. Fight till the end. In fact, Josephus writes about how the soldiers out of wrath and hatred that they bore against the Jews nailed those they caught one after one way, another after another, to the crosses by way of jest, 
by kind of laughing as they're putting these people on crosses and putting them to death. So when the multitude was so great that the multitude was so great that room was wanting for crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. They didn't have enough crosses for all the bodies that they wanted to crucify and display for the world to see outside the Roman walls. Now, in all sensitivity with the terrible things that happened at the Holocaust, I think that's worse. I really do. You're, you're starving inside. There's fighting inside. You try to get outside, you're going to be crucified. Your family members are seeing other people outside the wall being crucified. And Josephus described the situation back in Jerusalem. He said, The noise of those that were fighting was incessant, both day and night. But the lamentations of those that mourned exceeded the other. For there, nor was there any occasion for them to leave off their lamentations because the calamities came perpetually upon one another. In other words, as constant and loud as the fighting was, the cries of agony exceeded it. Fighting was all the time, day and night, all the time. And above that, you could hear the lamenting and the grief and the agony and the pain of everything that's taking place. And Josephus then stepped back and he said, okay, let's, let's think about this that happened at Jerusalem. He said, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. He said, he says, there's been no comparison of the incredible wickedness that took place there at the time of Jerusalem. In fact, he said, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared with those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. That is almost exactly what Jesus says here in verse 21. There will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. That part's true. And then he said, nor ever shall. And I believe that points us back to A.D. 70 as the fulfillment of these things. Well, the next verse talks about how the Lord sovereignly shortened those days. And I believe that the Lord sovereignty, sovereignly shortened the siege of Jerusalem because if he hadn't, there would have been absolutely no survivors. And we wouldn't have even had the story of Josephus telling us about it, because he was a Jew himself, but he survived to tell the story. But he said there, but for the sake of the Christians in the city, who are identified here as the elect, but for the sake of elect, those days will be cut short. <laughs> we ought to find great comfort in this. And this is where our application really comes from this. Though we may not be in this time of tribulation today, so it may come, we can be encouraged that God is mindful of us in times of distress. Here the Romans were pouring out all their wrath on Jerusalem, and all of it was done under the watchful eye of God. He observed the atrocities that were going on in the city of Jerusalem, and nothing escaped his notice. He was mindful of his chosen ones who had chosen from the foundation of the world for salvation. It's called the elect. That's just what it means. And he wasn't just going to sit by and let them destroyed. Rather, God shortened the days to save some of his people from certain death and destruction. Now, that's not to say that God will always protect the elect from death. In fact, you read in Revelation chapter 7, there are many who come out of the great tribulation to stand before the Lord with their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, these were the elect who were martyred for their faith. There are times the elect will be martyred for their faith. Those at Smyrna, God told them to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
So this passage, you can't extrapolate this to say that God is always going to protect the elect and allow them to live. And difficult days may well be ahead of us. Tribulation may well come upon us. In fact, Jesus promised us that. In John 16:33, he said, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, because I have overcome the world. So it just says, right, that we could possibly experience great tribulation, but take courage, because Christ has overcome the world. And even in our days of tribulation, we may stand secure, knowing that we have a good God whose eyes are in every place, watching the evil and the good. And when evil comes upon us from the hands of wicked men, we know that nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So I I believe that though this was fulfilled back in A.D. 70, it doesn't mean that we as Christians ought to think it can't happen to us. It's the way prophecy works, right? I've told you this before. There's a near fulfillment, and then maybe there's greater fulfillment and further fulfillment coming on. And I think God has promised that the, the life of a Christian will be a, a tumultuous life. And it may be that times get a lot worse. I heard someone describe America as like we live in Disneyland. Compared to the whole rest of the world, he said, our life is like Disneyland. And you know what Disneyland is like, right? you got life outside his home drum, and you get in, and all of a sudden you hear this, everything's nice and, and flowery and all the, you know, all the things are clean. The streets are immaculately clean. The rides are fun. The music is this. You kind of go. You meet these fun friends. That's what we live like in America. And Disneyland may end at some point. You go to a foreign land, as I was recently in Nepal. They don't live in Disneyland. They live south side of Chicago. Maybe not the violence, but just the difficulty of the life that they live. And tribulation may very well come upon us. And I say this, if you've trusted in Christ as, as your Savior and have believed in Him and trust His atoning work upon the cross, you've trusted in the grace of God, right? And so if and when tribulation comes, I just encourage you to entrust yourselves to the same grace of God. That God protected these elect here and God will protect any He wants to protect. When days of difficulty come, know that if God wants to rescue you, He will rescue you. If He wants you to be martyred, He will let you be martyred. In fact, there's a, a point in Revelation when the martyrs are crying out, How long, O oh Lord? How long until our blood is avenged? And He says, You just wait, just wait until your number is complete. You know what that means? He's got other elect martyrs out there who are living now and they need to be martyred so that their number is complete and then vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. But this verse ought to comfort us that if God wants to protect you, He can do whatever He wants, even allowing a Roman siege to come into Jerusalem shorter than what might have been expected. And we need to trust what Jesus did when tribulation comes upon us while being reviled he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Well, that's our second sign. And um, You know what? We'll just stop here. I don't think I've ever done this before in a message. We'll just stop here. It's about time to stop. You see on your notes, I'm prepared to go on with a, a longer point. I'll just add that on to next week. It kind of shifts in with the next week's passage.
Let's just look at those two. The abomination of desolation. When, when something comes, when you see something that God hates, why don't you flee from that and know that tribulation is coming and you need to trust that God can, if He wants, to preserve you from those days. Let's pray unto Him. Lord, I think of the horrors of this passage. And I know how many times I have read them without realizing what took place in the time of the disciples. What many of these disciples saw and what the early Christians saw of what took place in Jerusalem. How bad, O oh Lord, it was. And yet, for the sake of the elect, Lord, you are gracious allowed the days to be shortened and saved some. Perhaps even those were disobedient Christians who didn't flee Jerusalem. You are still gracious to even those who maybe neglected your warning. <coughs> maybe those who were deceived at these things and were in the city and you wanted to extend grace to them. So I pray, O oh Lord, that we would do these things at church, that we would be those to, to flee as far from sin as possible, not to get the edge that we might fall over, but to stay as far away from the edge as possible that there is no chance that we could possibly fall. I pray that we might not be those who think that we can stand because those are the very ones who need to take heed lest they fall. But I pray even most of all, Lord, that we would trust your grace, your sovereignty, and your power. Lord, that can protect and uphold and guide and strengthen and guard in all circumstances. That, Lord, in all ways we would be those to trust your grace and your goodness. I mean, after all, you've saved us by your grace. We certainly ought to believe also that you will keep us by your grace as well. And so I pray, Lord, in your time that you would do that. God, build us up as a church. Allow us to face the temptation, the trials, and the tribulations with victory. Lord, knowing that when they come, you're sovereign in it all. We might take it and live so as to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.